Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls, and it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happened to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was, which makes me wonder, if you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there. On True Scary Story. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is proudly brought to you by Mel Science, Best Fiends, Pretty Litter, and the Chilling Tales' very own 2019 Evil Idol competition. Our fourth annual horror voice acting competition going on now exclusively on our YouTube channel. I'll be back after each of our first three stories tonight to share a bit more information about each of our sponsors with you, including some special offers they have for you of those that are listening this evening. Until then, settle in, get cozy, and prepare to be unsettled. The show is about to begin. <laughs> it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. 
On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of four rounds of frightening fiction about unrefusable offers, dastardly distractions, sinister psychology, and dangerous detours. I'm Otis Jiry, host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its fourth season, and available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found, and I'm filling in for my friend Steve Taylor. Tonight, I'll be your host as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life, our voice actor talents, Adam Dirgeman, Alex Hill-Knight, Derb LeClue, and Eric Peabody, all of them top-performing contestants in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and other entries in the competition. The first round started in early October and runs through mid-December, so there are plenty of more competitors and amazing stories yet to come. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> our first tale tonight from author Richard Saxon is voiced by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number nine, Adam Dirgeman. In it, a man living a humdrum life is offered the opportunity of a lifetime at a local pharmacy. Pop a pill and get everything you could ever want. <laughs> what could go wrong? Without further ado, I present to you The Perfect Life. Be the best you you can be. An overnight change for the fantastic price of $1. The crude, hand-drawn sign was placed on the door of the pharmacy. Just newly opened after being closed for renovations. Despite being brand new, it was an awfully unimpressive sight. Yet, I was curious. Not that I intended to fall for any miracle cure, but I wanted to know what they could possibly offer as a life-changing experience for only a buck. Seeing as I had some loose change still rattling around in my pocket after an unhealthy burger for lunch... I figured I could satisfy my curious itch by looking around inside. As I entered, I realized the pharmacy hadn't changed much since it had closed a year ago. The same products and outdated advertisements hung above the aisles with grandiose offers they couldn't possibly satisfy. Welcome, sir. How may I help you on this fine day? The pharmacist said. 
He was a middle-aged, impeccably groomed man, wearing an expensive suit that clashed with the otherwise rough-looking interior. If I were to venture a guess, I'd say the renovation was mostly spent on that one man. Although he was clearly working there, he looked nothing like a pharmacist. Yeah, hi. I was just curious about the self-improvement offer on the poster outside. Ah, yes. Are we looking for a quick fix to improve your life? Actually, I was just curious. I mean, how much can you really get for a dollar? The man looked at me with a confused expression. You mean to say that if we charged a thousand dollars for the solution, you'd have more faith in it? Well, that's not... What's your name, sir? Daniel. Daniel Pace. Well, Mr. Pace, as it is, I'm in the business of giving people what they want. Money? I have enough of that. Don't even see why people desire it so much. Which is why I've come up with this. So, what's this, exactly? A pill. Single dose. Only taken once. And you invented it? Yes, sir, I did indeed. I never knew much about medicine, but I had little faith that a singular pill could change anyone's life for the better. Even though it was cheap, better safe than sorry when it comes to thoughtlessly ingesting an unknown substance. Sorry, I'm gonna pass this time. I understand, he said smiling. We'll be here if you ever change your mind. I guess this is the point where I should tell everyone an undeniable fact. I am not nor have I ever been a very smart man. Being in my twenties, I wasted most of my time lying around in bed watching television and drinking far too much. A classic underachiever that peaked early in life. And then fell flat when faced with the real world. To be frank, I was a chubby piece of shit that wouldn't ever get where I dreamt of without a miracle. That night, I stayed up late watching old movies and drinking whiskey all by myself. Alcoholism was a curse I expected right around the corner, and as I awoke in the morning, I could immediately feel the well-earned punishment of a headache. I decided to return to the pharmacy. If nothing else, I'd only lose a buck, and gained a much-needed walk. Ah, Mr. Pace! What a pleasure it is to see you again, the man said as I entered the pharmacy. Hello, I'm here again about that pill you were talking about uh, yesterday. You finally decided to give it a try? Not yet. I'd kind of like to know how it works first, being safe and all. Naturally, a smart move. But let's ignore all the scientific jargon. I'll put it in layman's terms. All right, fair enough. The man took a break, mulling over what to say next. Think of a car. It has a driver's seat, a few passenger seats, and a trunk. Now imagine that each seat is occupied by a version of yourself. There's a smart one, a fun one, a lazy one, and maybe one that makes all the right choices in life. They all remain in the car till the end of time, 
but sometimes the driver changes. The one that will be in charge. What this pill does is let the best version of yourself take the wheel for as long as possible, and puts the lazy one in the trunk of the car. It was a painfully slow metaphor, but it got the point across. So you'd say it brings out the best in people? In a manner of speaking, yes. All for one buck. Exactly. I searched my pockets for whatever loose change I could find and handed it over to the man. He smiled as he gave me a small paper bag containing a pill within a fancy gold-rimmed box. I hadn't yet decided to use it, but for the price, I wasn't too worried about it being a scam. For the next few days, the pill lied safely within my bedside drawer. Whether to take it out or not was yet to be decided, but an easy solution was tempting. And being the undisciplined brat that I was, it didn't take much to push me over the edge. That push came a night I decided that sleep was overrated, even though I had to get up for work in the morning. When 1am rolled around, and I could already see the struggle of getting up at the break of dawn, I truly started to hate myself. The time had come to risk it and take the pill. In the end, what was the worst that could happen? It's not like the man could have gained anything from murdering people, and if he did, somebody probably would have heard about it already. With a sip of water, I swallowed the large pill and sat down on my bed. I wasn't exactly sure what I expected to happen, but the effect certainly didn't come immediately. A minute passed, and then an hour, and yet nothing had changed. At three o'clock, I decided it was enough. It seemed that I'd lost a dollar and desperately needed sleep. The following morning, I awoke just a couple of minutes before my alarm, feeling both invigorated and awake, despite having only slept for no more than four hours, a welcoming feeling after an irresponsibly long night. In addition to my wakefulness, the apartment was completely clean. My first thought was that my mold-ridden apartment had stunk up the hallways to the point where someone broke in just to clean it for me. But then I noticed my wrinkly fingers that had spent an abnormal amount of time underwater, presumably while cleaning the apartment. Sleep cleaning, if that's a thing. Was that how the pill worked? Making my body complete household tasks during my unconscious hours? Days went by and the bizarre sleep phenomenon continued. I would fall asleep at ungodly hours and go to work on mundane tasks such as meal prepping, exercise, and paperwork. And despite performing all the monotonous tasks, I would wake up in the mornings feeling as fresh as ever. Within a few weeks, I lost 10 pounds and was chosen for promotion, mostly based on the work I did while unconscious. It gave me a newfound confidence to break out of my shell and meet new people. As the weekend arrived, I decided to give social life a chance and went out with a few co-workers for beers at a local pub I had seen but never dared enter on my own. I haven't even spoken much to any of them in the past, but since my promotion, I had the opportunity to interact with more people rather than paper. I felt hazy even after the first beer, 
and the next thing I know, I woke up in the bed next to a naked woman I'd never seen before in my life. Not even a vague recollection of the previous night, but as with usual blackouts, I had no hangover to accompany the loss of memory. I was as fresh as ever. Had I been roofied, or simply forgotten the amount of alcohol I consumed? One-night stands were a new experience for me and certainly nothing I'd felt comfortable with. As soon as the woman woke up, I made some excuse and asked her to leave, even offered to pay for the cab. But she wasn't too happy. That was the beginning of my new life. Every now and then, I would lose a few hours, black out while doing some mundane task and not realize what was happening, until I found myself driving home from work or just finishing dinner. For each lost chunk of time, I would improve my life in one way or another. I figured it was a decent trade. My mind turned to autopilot whenever I was bored, and in return I felt great. I attempted to return to the pharmacy where it all started, wanting answers, but once again it had closed for renovations, without any contact information listed. A few months had passed, and yet again I was promoted, which would have been great news if I could recall any of the work I'd completed for the company. At first, I only lost a few hours here and there, getting rid of boring tasks and otherwise enjoying my life, but then the gaps grew longer. I became unable to recall days on end. After a year of this, weeks started to turn blank. Then, I lost an entire year. I remember returning to consciousness and glancing at a brand new, top-of-the-line phone in an apartment I didn't recognize. Upon glancing around the place, I saw some of my old decorations and pictures showing me as a much healthier, happier person than I could ever recall being. The newer photos were pictures of myself alongside a woman, hugging, kissing. Apparently, I'd found myself a girlfriend, or rather, my better half had found someone. A beautiful brunette with brown eyes that lit up like gold in the sunshine. Extremely talkative as well, hardly let me get a word in between sentences. We only spent a couple of days together, but it was absolutely enough for me to fall head over heels for her. I had a perfect weekend in my own body, with her by my side. We talked about life and our future goals. She was a bit suspicious at my forgetfulness. But as much as she loved to run her mouth and reminisce about life, it was easy to catch up on what had happened so far. Whatever my doppelganger or alternate self was doing, he had managed to build a perfect life, and I wished for nothing more than to settle down and actually live it. But deep down, I knew in my heart that no matter what I did, I could never live up to the man he was. As the doubt started to seep into the back of my mind, I could feel myself drifting back into the timeless void. Two years passed. During that time, my better self had saved up a minor fortune, so I spent the time I had for myself getting checked out by doctors, shrinks, psychics, shamans, basically anyone willing to help me out. From what I could gather, the alternate me had never had any concerns about the blackouts, never even mentioning them to anyone. 
the professionals offered little in terms of helpful advice, citing different neurological disorders, psychiatric conditions, or even demons possessing me. At that point, they all seemed equally plausible to me. Whatever the solution, I wasn't given enough time to find it before my more productive self once again took the wheel. Ten long years passed before I finally woke up. A whole fucking decade. Lucy, whom I barely knew, was now my wife, and together we had two children, a fact I only discovered as they barged into our bedroom and jumped on our bed. In shock, I did my best to pretend I belonged in that family, while making a half-hearted excuse to get out of the house. I actually told Lucy there was a problem at work, which was a risky solution as I had no clue what my job was anymore. My body felt older and walking around put a strain on my knee. There was a neat surgical scar, so something must have happened to me while I was on autopilot. Defeated, I wandered into town, knowing full well that I could fall back into the void and be lost again for God knows how long. I headed for the town park, a place I used to visit during times of distress to clear my head. But at some point during these past 10 years, it had been replaced by a shopping mall and its accompanying parking lot. There used to be a cafe next to the park, and like a minor ray of sunshine, in my otherwise cloudy existence, it was still there. A vague hint of familiarity. I headed there and sat down. Of course, the staff were all brand new. I sat down in the same booth I always used to and was handed a menu. Oddly well preserved with only a few minor changes. I wondered for a bit if my alternate self ever visited this cafe. A man sat himself down in the booth with me. Mr. Pierce, it's been a while, he said. It was the man from the pharmacy, and he hadn't aged a day since our last meeting. Oh, please, Mr. Pace, are you not going to greet the man that changed your life? You mean ruined my life? What the hell have you done to me? I said louder than expected. A couple of waitresses shot me a concerned look. I did exactly what you asked me to do. He smiled and watched me think back to our first meeting. The promise of getting rid of my procrastinating self, letting the better me take control of the steering wheel. I didn't want this. I'm not even living my own life. Of course you are. Well, more accurately, the improved version of you. Successful, healthy, with beautiful wife and children. It's everything you ever wanted. You just didn't want to work for it. I don't care. Just give me back my old life. Uh-uh, that's not how it works, Mr. Pace. Everyone has to make a choice in life, and very rarely do we get to redo these decisions. The man stood up from the booth, getting ready to leave. Oh, if you're ordering, you should try the Eggs Benedict. They're to die for. Might as well enjoy the time you have with yourself. Wait! He turned back towards me. I... I need to know why you did this. He chuckled. <laughs> I did it because you asked me to. Seriously, though, Eggs Benedict. Try them out. Reflexively, I glanced at the menu, 
and when I reverted my gaze back up, the man had disappeared. Before I had the chance to order anything, I began to feel hazy, and shortly after, I blacked out. My body returned to autopilot. I was jolted back to reality by a violent coughing fit. My mouth felt like sandpaper and I found myself sitting in a poorly lit room, wearing clothes that somehow chafed in places I didn't even know were possible. Everything seemed dull around me, like I was in a poorly rendered version of reality. But the world wasn't any different. My eyes had just been worn out by a life well lived just not by me. I fumbled around to find a pair of glasses tucked into my shirt pocket. Finally, I could get a grasp of where and when I was. After a quick glance around the room, I noticed a calendar on the wall. Thirty-seven years had passed since the cafe. Getting up from the chair proved to be a challenge. My joints didn't want to carry the weight of my own body, aching with every step. I was out of breath just standing up. Based on the artifacts in my house, little memoirs, I could tell I had outlived my wife. My children had moved abroad in search of adventures, and I didn't recognize the names of any of my friends or co-workers. Thirty-seven years had passed since that day in the cafe, and my life had been the perfect dream I always wanted. Unfortunately, I wasn't the one living it. I had another coughing fit, expelling thick bloody phlegm with each push of air. After almost passing out, I made my way to the bathroom, something that proved hard to find in an unknown home. The drug names meant nothing to me, but the instructions were clear. I had lung cancer. Son of a bitch. I never even smoked, to the best of my knowledge. I heard the creaking of a chair coming from the living room. Surprisingly, my hearing was still quite intact, even at such an advanced age. Even before I went to check it out, I knew who I'd meet. Hello, Mr. Pace. Please, have a seat. The pharmacist, there to watch me spend my last few cancer-riddled days in agony. What do you want? I came here to thank you, but I see I might be a little too late. What the fuck are you talking about? When I say I wanted to thank you, I meant the better you. But it appears he's already left us. Lung cancer is a painful way to go, and I suppose he took his freedom the moment he saw it available. I bet he did, I responded sarcastically. Anyhow, I wanted to thank the improved Mr. Pace for his excellent service while working for me. What? That's right. For the better part of your life, the gaps you've missed in time were spent working for me. But I needed someone more productive, someone more inclined to put forth their best effort. You mother There's no need for that. In fact, I'm here to give you a second chance. 
I simply stared at him, not wanting to give him a chance to screw my life up further. Daniel, please. You might not realize it, but we're going to be very good friends any day now. I somehow doubt that. Well, let me ask you this. What would you do to get your life back? Anything. What if I gave you the opportunity to work for me, and in return, you get to live through the approximately 60 years you can't remember? Work? Yes, an assistant of sorts. Your family would never know what kind of work you do, and you'd be given a rather generous salary with benefits, and the best health insurance you could dream of. Who the hell are you? Oh, I haven't introduced myself yet. No, you have not. Well then, I go by many names, but you can call me Lucifer. His smile widened. He reached out his hand, offering a deal with the devil to get my life back. Without hesitation, I shook it. I think we're going to have a very productive partnership together, Daniel. No sooner had he spoken these words before I woke up in my younger body, back to the moment just after I had swallowed the pill. It had lit up an undying motivational force within me, and I knew exactly what to do and how to do it. I was ready to live the perfect life. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Perfect Life as written by Richard Saxon and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number nine, Adam Durgerin. Up next, we've got another tale for you. This one, courtesy of author Gareth Shore, about yet another gentleman seeking escape from the ordinary was also presented with the chance to change everything. But at what cost? Stay tuned and find out. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's first sponsor, Mel Science. Mel Science is a chemistry subscription service that sends you monthly experiments to do with your child. They're a great way to engage kids in science early educate in a joyful manner, and get kids to conduct real scientific experiments with their own hands. Not to mention, 
two things all parents want to create for their children are memorable experiences and learning opportunities, and male science combines the two. Our director Craig's got three boys of his own, and they got their first kid a few days ago and had a blast doing the two included experiments together. And not only were the activities a lot of fun, they were also educational. Craig's family received a set of experiments known, perhaps all too perfectly for our program, as Chemistry of Monsters. And this is just one of the many you'll get to share with your kids once you've signed up. Included in Craig's starter kit was everything they needed to get started. The main equipment for the experiments themselves, including two pairs of safety glasses, gloves, and a VR headset that helps the science come alive before your very eyes, as well as accessories for his smartphone, which help you learn chemistry as effectively as possible. It works with a tablet, too. The two experiments included were a couple that weren't too tough on the difficulty scale and were perfect for Craig to do with his two older boys. The first had him creating a carbon snake that grows from a tablet of calcium gluconate. The helpful cards that came with the experiment made it simple to follow along, as well as stay safe. Mel even included a link to their website where you could learn more about the reactions that caused the snake to form. How cool is that? The second experiment was a foam eruption, which if you've ever been to a grade school science fair, you're probably familiar with. It's the same experiment that kids would do to get realistic-looking lava to pop out of their homemade volcanoes. Except Mel makes it safe and easy to do. Uh, this, right in your own home. Craig told me the experiments were fantastic and a way to spend quality time with his kids. It's more than textbook learning. It's a way for your kids to absorb complex scientific concepts by applying them in real life. It's one thing to see these reactions in a video or describe them in writing somewhere, and another entirely to see the changes right before your eyes. Craig said the best part of the kits was that all the experiments were designed with quality time in mind and the step-by-step -step instructions for every set made it easy to delegate tasks to his kids if he determined they were old enough to handle things safely or let him know when it was better for him to step in and just let them observe. He had amazing things to say about the included VR set and the Mel Science app, which let him and his kids see how the molecules of the substance they were working with looked in 3D. Not only that, but Mel included enough reagents in the kits to allow him to do each experiment at least twice so both of his older boys could give it a try. And he was very grateful the experiments are designed to be done in two hours or less, because who doesn't have a hectic schedule these days? Craig said it was truly fun for the whole family, and was definitely something he'd never been able to do on his own without Mel's help. He says he's looking forward to getting the next kid with two to three brand new experiments the following months. On the first month, in your first box, every subscriber receives the free starter kit I mentioned before, with all the necessary equipment to use during the whole subscription, 
including the free virtual reality headset to use with the free VR lessons every subscriber gets access to. Mel Science provides a great alternative to school labs and is great for homeschooling. With over 30 chemistry topics represented and with free shipping within the U.S. included in the price of the subscription, Mel's making it easy to have fun learning. As a monthly subscription, Mel Science is the gift that keeps on giving. You can pause or cancel anytime if you're not satisfied or need a break for whatever reason. An example of some of the experiments you can expect to do with your Mel Science subscription include assembling a functioning battery, growing crystals, learning the basics of electricity, launching a mini rocket, and much, much more. Now, I don't have kids myself, but I'm always looking for cool gifts for my loved ones, and after hearing about how much Craig and his family had with the kits, I know Mel is a great choice to get help for kids immersed in science and the perfect gift for those with bright, inquisitive kids tired of the same old apps and video games. Ready to get started? It's easy. Get 25% off plus a free starter kit, a free virtual reality headset, and free shipping when you text TALES to 64000. Text TALES to 64000 to get this special offer from Mel Science. And remember, you support the show when you support our sponsors. So text TALES to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you so much for your time and for giving Mel Science a try this month. Now that we've helped cook up some serious fun with the help of our friends at Mel Science, allow me to provide my own evidence of cause and effect and see if I can give you the heebie-jeebies by means of another frightening tale. In our second tale tonight, from author Gareth Shore, as performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 15, Alex Hill Knight, a gentleman returning home one night following the vacation from hell with his significant other and her kids, finds himself in a position to leave it all behind. But, as he'll soon learn, that for every great sales pitch there's always a catch. Without further ado, I present to you the Sounds of Sirens. The only thing worse than motorway driving is nighttime motorway driving. The drizzle doesn't help, glittering the glare of headlights and streetlights across the windscreen before the wipers smear it away. Then it glitters again, and then it's smeared away again. On and on, the thump, 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 a bass beat to the other noises. The ones that are always louder when you're the driver of a car full of sleeping people. Grunts and the odd snort from Karen next to me up front. Open mouth breathing from her offspring in the back. Beth is sitting upright at least, unlike Melissa who hangs forward nearly out of her seatbelt, a string of drool joining her mouth to her 
the lonely nymph book. Typical. I look away and shiver. You wouldn't think that at eight years old, she was actually two years older than her sister. Definitely something wrong with that one. Karen went ballistic when I told her I thought so. Still, I suppose I should be thankful for a break from their bloody bleating and Karen's needy whine. Don't get involved in that mess, mate. Gary's words, offered with a frown over the top of his pint, come back to haunt me again. A warning siren I couldn't hear at the time. Older woman with two kids, ink barely dry on the divorce papers, the hell you thinking? Vulnerable and desperate for sex, that's what I was thinking. And Karen was at first, ten months ago, in the hire a babysitter and go out on the town days. That was then. Turns out Gary was right. Not that I'd ever tell him that. Bastard. Heard secondhand he's off with some of the Sunday lads to Turkey soon. None of them asked me. Bastards. Is this how it starts? The gradual exclusion from the social circle? Seen it happen before. <laughs> to others when they get to a certain age? Well, it's not going to happen to me. I hate most of them anyway. Mouthy jumped up pricks who think 30-something is a retirement age. I've still got irons in the fire. That new girl at work, for a start. I give Karen a sideways look. The lines and creases in her face look deep in the dashboard lights. Christ, is that what having kids does to you? The inside of the car darkens as something blocks out the streetlights. We're about to go under a bridge. I glance up and think I see a car parked up there, black against the streetlight-stained sky. I catch a flash of headlights. I wonder what... The beeping from the dashboard jolts me back for a few wide-eyed seconds and I can't remember what I'm doing. I've drifted over the line between lanes and jerk the wheel back, overcompensating. Karen sways in her seat a bit, but doesn't wake up. Someone horns me as we come out from under the bridge. I suppose I was in the wrong, but stick two fingers up anyway as the guy overtakes. Out of principle. Christ, this seatbelt's tight. My heart's bouncing out of my chest and I wipe a sheen of sweat from my forehead blaming the excitement of my lane drifting even though I know it's really chemically related. The sneaky hit I took in the service station's toilet. Karen suspects I'm still taking the stuff. I tell her I only use it on the occasional night out. Not that I fucking get out anymore. But she never actually says anything. Doesn't have to. Give me those I know you're lying looks instead. Jesus, I bet this is what it's like being married. Flicking on the aircon, wincing at the noise of the blast and quickly turning it down, I wipe my head again and look at myself in the rearview mirror, frowning at the dark bruises under my eyes. Drugs? Weariness? The weekend's holiday trapped in a caravan with Karen and her bitching kids? Like it was my fault it rained. Karen refusing to have some proper fun because the walls were too thin. What a fucking waste. 
And now I look like old father time. Yeah, fuck you, Gary. And fuck Turkey. In the rearview mirror, the bridge slides away as the motorway bends. A car definitely on it. Lights on, its outline boxy and generic. Probably some East European mobile skip. Who the hell parks on a bridge in the middle of the night anyway? What are they doing? Watching bloody traffic? I lunge into the middle lane without checking my mirrors, not bothering to indicate. It's quiet out here in the middle of nowhere anyway. Just stragglers like us heading home from arse-end places. Fiddle with the aircon. No effect. Why is it so bloody hot? Another bridge coming up. For some reason, wired boredom maybe, or desperate for a distraction from the cloying sour milk smell of sleep breath coming from behind. I give the bridge a proper look, even though it's dark and I'm nearly doing 80. It's one of those stone ones, surely too old to be safely spanning a six-lane motorway, arching from what looks like one field to another, and I am barely surprised when I spot a car parked on it. Headlights beaming, but otherwise just a silhouette. It looks the same as the one on the other bridge, all boxy sharp angles, but I couldn't swear to it as I flash underneath. If Karen was awake, I'd point it out to her, and she would no doubt give me her patented senility smile before dribbling with some random news flash about whose birthday was coming up, or, worse still, drone through one of her Tales from the Workplace. I flick the temperature dial down another notch, telling myself the cold won't wake Karen or the kids up, and shift in my seat, trying to unstick my shirt from my back. Is this cheap piece of shit aircon even working? To try and distract myself, I think about all the times I've been on a motorway and spotted a lone car or person on a bridge in the middle of absolute nowhere. Everyone sees them, But do they ever wonder what those weirdos are doing up there? My theories include sadocar spotters, serial suicide contemplators, but not actually doers, too chicken shit. Members of some nutjob bridge cult or throwback numpties who refuse to drive on anything bigger than a B-road. It doesn't work. I'm too aware of the stickiness of my skin and a dull pain behind my left eye that thumps in time with the wipers. My passengers breathe on, adding their sleep heat to the stifling air, and I flail a hand over one of the slatted blowers, convinced nothing's coming out. I come this close to yelling something, just to wake them all up, just to vent some frustration. Only to be stopped by the thought that listening to the girls bickering in Karen's monologues would be worse. Furious that I can't even play music. I switched the sat-nav on, just to have something else to look at beside the occasional set of strobing cat's eyes. It lights up, and I divide my attention between the road and the screen, reading place names that I have never heard of, and never will think about again once they have scrolled away. Taking lanes and ribboning streams and unpopulated blocks of green with them, I try to ignore a trickle of sweat down my neck. Lights up ahead, floating above the road. Another bridge. Can't tell exactly yet, but I have a little bet with myself. 
that if it is, and there's a car on it, then I am allowed a little pick-me-up when I get home to mum and dad's, after I've gladly dropped off Karen and her little money leeches off. I glance at the sat-nav. Knowing already whatever the outcome of the bet, I'm treating myself to some white-powdered bliss when I get in. <laughs> the bridge doesn't appear on the screen. Grey blocks slide down the side of the solid line of motorway like a broken Tetris game. But there is definitely no bridge showing. I wonder if the sat-nav's as shot as the aircon. I peer ahead between the swing of the wipers. See what must be headlights on a... Is it? Yes, it is. First prize in the Class A raffle goes to the man in the sweaty shirt. Distinctly bridge-shaped block of solid dark across the motorway. I check the sat-nav again, and it's definitely not there. Yet, here it comes. A looming arch, blacker than the sky behind it. A torch beam flashes across to the windscreen, dazzling me. What the hell? From a figure leaning over the edge, I swear it points and waves before I am under, through, and past. Blinking stars, I press the brakes, hard enough to lean Kate forward and lock my seatbelt, and swerve onto the hard shoulder and grind to a stop. Get my breath. What are you doing? You're wasting more time after a whole crap weekend, only half an hour from home? My hand stops halfway to the gear stick. The thought of driving away without going to check the bridge seems wrong. Maybe it's just nosiness. A distraction from the numbing mind fuck of the drive. A chance to escape this heat and bloody get some fresh air. When I turn the engine off... The drizzle tinkles on the roof in the quiet for a few seconds before fading. I check the windscreen and see the rain has stopped and notice how empty the motorway is. How there is a big silence out there. The bridge is just a band of featureless black in my mirrors. No light to be seen from this angle. Then it hits me that I'm parked on the hard shoulder in the middle of the night to... Do what? Get a fucking grip. I actually touch the gear stick this time when it comes a pull, like a small undertow tugging at my thoughts. What if there's a woman stranded out there? A gorgeous one, all grateful and breathless when I come to rescue her. Very grateful. Not for the first time in my life, my groin overrides my brain and I put the hazard lights on. Check my side mirror and get out into the air that is not the cool relief I was hoping for. The interior light comes on, bright to my eyes, but thankfully no one inside stirs. Clicking the door shut, I peer back at the bridge and think I can see a figure still waving. Not in a help-me kind of way, more like a come here and look at this. I squint in the on-off, on-off of the hazards, unable to make out any details, unable to tell if it's a man or a woman yet. I stumble out of the car's orange glow and into the black of the hard shoulder, kicking stones and gravel I can't see. No streetlights on this section, which lets more stars come through the sky than I've seen for a long time. 
Although I'm wary of the tarmac lane stretching out close by, the motorway seems empty for now. I catch a gleam of long white hair up on the bridge and can't help the grin that appears on my face. I yank my shirt straight and realize the air is cooler now, the sweat drying on my forehead. Thank Christ for that. There aren't any steps up to the end of the bridge, just a grassy slope, so I take my time, not wanting to slip on my ass in front of this potential damsel in distress. I stop at the top for a breather and try to take in the view, except there isn't one. The motorway and surrounding fields are lost in the darkness, completely gone. Where the hell are the lights? The car is there as I look down, a long way down, it seems, from up here, its orange flashing glow not reaching beyond the hard shoulder. It's cold up here, a wind chilling what's left of the sweat on my exposed arms and face. The woman is waiting for me halfway across, no more than a waving light and a flash of silver hair floating in the dark. No sign of headlights, or a car, come to think of it. I squint a bit, searching for the boxy outline I saw from the road, but the bridge is so dark I can barely see beyond a few feet. In fact, it feels completely bloody isolated up here. I know we're in the countryside somewhere, but still, there should be some sign of civilization? Like a house or a street, surely? I check my car again, suddenly convinced it'll be gone, leaving me stranded in the blackness. It's still there. Of course it is, an island of glowing orange on the hard shoulder, and as I spot the silhouettes of Karen and the girls inside, a memory of last night comes back to me. The four of us, locked in that caravan, in the light of the television, sitting through some god-awful cartoon the girls had insisted on putting on. Some drivel about a mermaid who lured sailors into her rock until, in a completely fucking unpredictable twist, oh yes, she fell in love and, well I can't remember the rest because I had to do a line in the bathroom to get through the rest of the evening. There are no rocks and no one singing up here. In fact, the only sound is the wind, cold around my face. But the connection stays with me and suddenly I don't want to go out on that bridge. I'd rather be back in that hot car, breathing second-hand air. Turn around then. What's the problem? Male pride, that is the problem. I can't just get off, run away. Anyway, I might as well get a look at her now I'm here. Who knows, she might be a stunner, a glamour model, a hot housewife. Might have been waiting hours for help. Yes. The word appears just like that in my head without my ears getting involved. Are you okay, love? I call more to cover my fright than anything. My voice wavers and I can barely hear myself over the wind but the light stirs, bobs forward like she's taken a step towards me. I am glad I called you. The voice is there again, invading my skull without travelling through the air between us, 
mesmerizing in a way I can't describe. A way that distracts me from the actual words. The lantern bobs again and an outline comes with it. She is a head taller than me. Long silvery hair falling down her sides and highlighting the curves of her hips, stirring more in me in one glance than seeing Karen in all her sagging cellulite glory. Do you need help? Even as I speak, I'm answering a voice in my head. Why doesn't this feel more wrong? I know deep in my bones, in my quivering gut, especially in my balls, that something else Something beyond what I am seeing and experiencing is going on here. Like a magician covering an object with a silk cloth. I can see the rough shape of it, but I don't know what it is until it's pulled away. You are full of love. I don't feel any shame about the erection pushing at my trousers as she brings the light another step closer. Jesus! She's naked. I can't see anything. Not really, just the impression of hips and thighs and breasts skinned in nothing but night and shadow. I snap my gaze up to her face, where eyes shine out of oval darkness. It's hard to tell where she starts and the night ends, but I can see enough to make my erection ache like I'm a bloody teenager again, touching a girl for the first time. I literally pinch myself, dig my nails into the back of my hand, and it's like someone's thrown a cup of cold water in my face. I turn to hide my ridiculous lump, some part of my poor man brain screaming at me to get off this fucking bridge now. Absolutely brimming with love. My legs stop and turn me back to face her. She is closer, and her eyes are huge and bright in the dark like lanterns, and a breeze wafts over my face, and it's not the wind, it is her breath, and it smells like spices and freshly turned earth. All of that love you keep for yourself, that you refuse to give to others, I will take it, and my sisters will have their share. Other lights glow into life on the bridge, moving into a circle with me at the center. I know there is still a warning voice yelling at me inside my skull, but it is faint, like it is locked behind a thick door deep underground, and besides, her eyes are beautiful and so shining I can see myself in them, and it's fascinating. Why me? a voice asks, and says again, why me? Before I realize it's my voice and that I've just said it. Like when I'm drunk and I tell Karen how dull she is and I can't remember saying it later, so I tell her she must have made it up just to start an argument. Her light moves out of the circle and glides over to the wall at the side of the bridge. Finally, you are the right one. And we accept your offering. Offering? I don't know if it is a thought or if I have spoken out loud again. I follow her to the parapet and look to where an orange glow shines on tire tracks smeared across the tarmac, snaking onto the hard shoulder, leading towards the reveal. My car 
burning in the middle of the blazing light in the mass of dark down there, and heat, waves of heat carried on smoke. I want to turn from the brightness, but it holds me there, feeling that heat, remembering that heat, and I see the black shape within the flames, three of them, flames flickering around them like orange lights, like flashing hazard lights. My nails scratch across stone as I am pulled away, just as the world is filled with the sound of sirens. I hope you enjoyed The Sound of Sirens, as written by Gareth Shore and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 15, Alex Hill-Knight. Up next, we've got a third tale for you. This one courtesy of author Alyssa Gallo about the discovery of a set of unsettling letters. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's second sponsor, Best Fiends. Now, as everyone knows by now, as host of this program, horror fiction is one of my personal passions. But even I need the occasional break, so when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends, one of the world's most visually stunning mobile puzzle adventure games. And this award-winning game is 100% free to download now in your app store of choice. Now, there's a good chance that you've probably already heard of Best Fiend. And if you're not already playing, there's a good chance that someone you know is. With 100 million, that's right, I say million, global downloads and counting, a five-star average review on both Apple and Google App Stores, and 1.7 million people playing on average every day, there's a better than average chance you'll love it too. Whether you're a regular gamer or a casual player looking for something to help wind down your off hours, I guarantee you'll find something to love about Best Fiends, and that its addictive, challenging puzzles will keep you entertained for a long time to come. If you're listening to this program, then we know you love a good story, and I'm thrilled to say that Best Fiends is more than just a game. It's an entire world with its own backstory characters and plot just waiting to be explored and experienced. In this award-winning game, you'll discover the world of Minutia and its courageous inhabitants. And as their story goes, these small creatures live in harmony until a night the meteor struck Mount Boom, bringing with it a strange force that transformed the slugs who lived there into an army of greedy, greenery gobbling pests. Now, with the slugs taking over the world, munching a path through minutia, and sliming up everything they touch, it's up to a brave band of heroes to fight back and save their world. Left alone when the slugs conquered most of minutia, these unlikely champions are on an epic quest to solve the mystery of Mount Boom and beat back the slug advance. But to get to Mount Boom, they'll need to become... The Best Fiends. It's a tale fit for this very program, even if the idea of battling mutated slugs seems a bit silly at first. It's a classic tale of good versus evil, with the underdogs putting everything on the line. And when you download the app and start playing, you're doing more than collecting characters, 
leveling them up and discovering their special powers, you're becoming a part of the story itself, and each of the over 2,000 levels in the game sucks you further into the action. The game was designed so that anyone can play, but it's intended for adults looking for a challenge and designed to engage your brain in ways that other apps don't. From the outset, it looks, and feels, just like your standard same-colored object matching puzzle game, and the first few levels are relatively easy. But after you advance a bit, you'll learn just how immersive the world of Best Fiends really is, and how much there is left to achieve. With new limited-time special events and themes each and every month, online gameplay options, thousands of levels and new characters, each with their own personalities and attributes, added regularly, there's always something new to experience in the world of Minutia, and plenty of reasons to pick the game back up. That said, the game is so accommodating, it allows you to stop and come back any time without losing your progress, and you'll never be forced to compete directly against anyone else, but can always share your progress and achievements as a badge of honor and have some friendly fun with friends and family, seeing who can get the farthest, the fastest. The team and I had a chance to talk with the folks behind Best Fiends and try the game out for ourselves, and it was every bit as challenging and as fun as it was described, and it was easy to see why so many play and enjoy the game every day. Even with our busy lives, we were able to devote half an hour to 45 minutes to the game every day, and what a great way to blow off some steam after our long day in the studio. From the first few levels, working on clearing the board by removing logs and twigs, blocking the way, it's downright therapeutic, and working to collect diamonds and go for the longest possible matches gives a real sense of achievement. It really is tough to put down once you start. That said, the game gets challenging pretty quickly, and it wasn't long before we found ourselves getting stuck at a specific stage. Personally, I spent ages at level 11, at which point my strategy was to replay older levels to collect more material and upgrade my collection of monsters, then reattempt the level later again. And just when you thought you had it all figured out, the game throws curveballs at you, with new gameplay elements added periodically as you advance. This isn't a bad thing, trust me. With a lot of practice and level replays before long, you'll create a nice team of fiends and be able to beat all the levels in this amazing game. Out of all the things that make this game incredible, the added replay value and the attention to detail is what keeps me and the team coming back. Like I said earlier, the developers of Best Fiends are always adding new characters, gameplay elements, levels, and events. It literally never gets old, and with the easy-on-the-eyes, colorful designs and visual design, and the offline gameplay that makes it great for traveling, what's not to love? Sometimes, after a long day of recording and audio editing, paying bills, and dealing with customers... Best Fiends is exactly what I need to relax. And I'm confident it'll be a great way for you to wind down too, no matter what you do for a living. So what are you waiting for? Best Fiends is free to download now. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters too. 
You can get this five-star rated mobile puzzle game on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Download it free on the Apple App Store and Google Play today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thank you so much for your time and for giving Best Fiends a try this month. Now that we've ensured you'll have hours of fun with the help of Best Fiends, allow me to introduce you to some other fiends, courtesy of our next fearsome tale. In our third tale tonight from author Alyssa Gallo, as performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number three, Dearbla Clue, we meet a woman who stumbles upon the testimony of a little girl trapped in a psychiatric ward and forced to endure torturous conditions, and how such horrors were allowed to happen. Without further ado, I present to you I found a diary tucked in a brick at an abandoned psych hospital. I grew up on Long Island, right outside of the Kings Park Psychiatric Center, home of the legend of Cropsey. I was always a good kid, never broke any rules, never really pushed the limits of what was and wasn't allowed. But recently, I moved home after graduating from college and just started looking for a job at NYC. Throughout my college years, I struggled with anxiety and depression which led to me being medicated to control it. Through this entire ordeal, all I could think about was the poor children of King's Park and what they must have gone through. Some of them just had anxiety, a common ailment in today's society and one that's completely manageable. And yet, they were stuffed inside an insane asylum, which was over capacity by 1,000 people and treated like animals. This revelation that I got extremely lucky has always been on my mind. If I had been born just a couple of decades earlier, and in the same area, who knows what may have happened to me. On the hinges of self-awareness, I decided to break the rules for once in my life. I had to visit King's Park and see what it was like for myself. For those of you who don't live in the New York area, King's Park has a gate around it. It's situated in the middle of a wooded area, but it's not like there are guards and an electric fence or anything. It's private property, so you're not supposed to trespass. But I can't say that almost my entire high school didn't go anyway. But I never did. I was always too terrified of the legends, and of Cropsey in particular. If you're not familiar, Cropsey was a legend that popped up in the Long Island area saying that one of the patients from King's Park had escaped and was killing people in the woods around the old hospital. Only part of this was true. There was someone killing young and mostly disabled children around the hospital, but it wasn't an escaped patient. It was an old ward of the hospital that was living in tunnels and bunkers underneath. Since the legend of Cropsey turned out to be based on truth, I decided this was something I just didn't want to mess with. King's Park would just be another broken-down building in the area, whose memory would pop into my mind at strange times. This all changed after college and my diagnosis, though. I know I wasn't diagnosed with anything heavy, but I still felt a sense of responsibility, or 
a camaraderie of sorts, and had to see what they experienced. So one night, around 7.30pm, I headed over towards King's Park with a flashlight, a backpack, and a water bottle. I figured I wasn't going to need anything else, but I did have a small hunting knife with me in my pocket. Just in case. I got to the broken-down foundations of the psychiatric hospital that tortured so many innocent children, and I couldn't find the strength to do anything more than just stare up at the walls. This thing is truly massive. If you haven't seen it, it's got about 15 floors and just goes straight up. I decided I had to push myself into the uncomfortable, and I found a window on the ground floor that was open and climbed in. I will say in hindsight that it was stupid of me to go alone, but I had to do this for myself. It was something that I was conquering, or so I thought in my head. As I wandered aimlessly around the corridors, looking at all the graffiti on the walls, seeing the broken-down bed frames with rusted metal and fingernail claw marks on what's left of the doors, I got real chills. For some reason, I felt particularly drawn to the third floor. I really can't explain what it was, but my feet just moved on their own, toward this one spot on the third floor of the abandoned hospital. There really wasn't anything special about it. It was just a hallway outside of a couple of rooms, near a communal bathroom. But since I was there, I looked around. I smelled the stale musk of the abandoned building, and scanned the exposed brick with my eyes. As I was looking through the shattered drywall to the exposed brick beyond, I caught a glimpse of a spot that was just slightly darker than the rest of the brick and mortar. Intrigued, I moved closer and shined my flashlight right onto the dark spot. With a little poking, prodding, and removal of even more drywall, I was able to fish it free. A small, string-bound diary made entirely out of loose-leaf paper. There wasn't a cover, so to speak, so it was able to be folded up nice and neatly and tucked away into an empty brick space behind the wall. My curiosity was thoroughly piqued, but I wasn't dumb enough to start reading right then and there. It was dark, and I was still inside a supposedly haunted asylum. I took one last look around the place, made peace with myself and the patients of the building, and went home. As soon as I got home and took a shower to rinse off whatever was left of King's Park, I opened up my backpack to retrieve the diary. The first entry read, April 24th, 1918. It is my first day here. Mama told me to keep track of the days and who I am so I don't forget. I am Florence Blackwell, and I am ten. Mama and Daddy made me come here to the hospital to get better. They said I was sick and that's why I wet the bed at night. Daddy said that once I get better, the other girls in town will want to play with me. Mama was sad when she dropped me off. She had tears in her eyes like she was going to cry, but I told her, Don't be sad, Mama. I'm going to get better for you. And the nice lady in the nurse hat took me inside of the hospital, while Mama cried from the outside. I don't know why Mama was so upset, Daddy was happy to see me go to the hospital to get better. The lady who took me inside of the hospital said her name was Nurse Wilson, and that I can call her Mary. 
Mama and Daddy always told me never to call an adult by their real names, but I think I can call her Mary. She's nice to me, not like that doctor. I don't remember his name, but that doctor was not nice. Mary brought me into a big white room in the hospital and asked me to take off all my clothes so I can put on a big white gown and the doctor can take a look at me. Mary helped me out of my dress that Mama made me and stand in the middle of the white room with a vent on the floor. Then Mary left and the doctor man came in. Or at least I think he was a doctor. He told me to stand with my arms out just like a starfish and to close my eyes and hold my breath. Then he took out a giant hose and sprayed the water directly at me. I fell backwards onto the floor from how heavy that water was. He didn't stop the hose, though. He kept spraying me with the heavy water on the floor of the tiled room, and he didn't stop until I was crying and crying and shivering from the cold water. The doctor man stopped the hose and told me to get up. He put a white gown on the floor in the puddles of water and told me to wear it. I put on the gown and Mary came back in. I cried to her, and she just pet my head and let me cry. Mary brought me to my room where I'm going to get better in the hospital. It had one bed, and there were two other girls in the room already. They were both sleeping when I walked in, so I didn't get to say hi to them. Mary slipped me back my little diary and told me to hide it so the doctor cannot find it again. I was so tired I fell asleep next to the other two girls, but I didn't sleep for long. In the middle of the night, I opened my eyes to see one of the other girls about three inches from my face just staring at me while I was sleeping. She looked at me with really big eyes and a big smile on her face, and when she saw me looking at her, she turned her head to the right like a puppy and said, It's time. When she said that, someone in the hallway screamed like their daddy was hitting them with a belt. They screamed and screamed, and then someone else screamed too. And then all of the kids on the floor were screaming as loud as they could. I don't know how I am supposed to get better when all these kids scream in the night. I hope they aren't hurt, but I also need to get better so I can go home to Mama. Mama said to write every day and remember who I am, so that's what I will do. After I read that first diary entry, scribbled in a child's handwriting on a piece of loose leaf, I was spooked, to say the least. I was actually holding a relic from a condemned insane asylum, dating back all the way to 1918. I immediately ran to my computer. Surely there must be some kind of record of the patients put into care at King's Park. I know it was a hospital where patients were tortured and even killed but there should be at least some semblance of record-keeping. While I could find articles labeled King's Park patient records, I couldn't find an actual list of everyone who was under care there. Also, unfortunately, Florence Blackwell was a popular name, and searches of her name basically led nowhere. I figured since my modern-day technology was striking out, the only solution was to push through and I had to read more of the diary to get anywhere. I will admit that I was scared. I'm still scared to leaf through the whole thing. And I'm not reading farther than I really have to. 
I'm terrified for little Florence and what may have happened to her and the others in that ward. And the simultaneous screaming in the middle of the night? Something was up, and I wasn't sure I really wanted to know what it was. But going back to the sense of camaraderie and duty that I felt while exploring King's Park in the first place, I felt that same sense of duty to Florence. Her story needs to be told, and her memory needs to be honored. So I kept reading. April 30th, 1918 My name is Florence Blackwell, or patient 0724. I haven't written anything here in a while, since I have just been so busy learning all the new things in this hospital. Mary comes to visit me every morning, and gives me a little cup filled with four different pills. All these pills are pretty small and round and white, except for a really big one that she gives me. It's twice as big as the others, and sometimes I accidentally cough it up when I try to swallow it. But Mary always helps me. She pets my head, gives me some water, and tells me to tilt my head back and try again. These pills always make me feel funny. It feels like my head is static on the radio. Mama always used to listen to the radio to see about the war and when Daddy was going to come home. And sometimes the man on the radio would stop talking and there would just be a loud static noise coming from it. It was so loud, Mama would scream a little if it scared her and run to the radio and turn it down so it didn't hurt my ears. I wish Mama could help me turn down the static in my head. After I get my pills in the morning, Mary brings me and my other roommate down to the main room for breakfast. This is always the scariest part of my day. There are people all over in wheelchairs, and some of them don't even know they're a person. At least, that's what my roommate 0698 says. 0698 was the one who stared in my face that first night. She's been here for two months now, and she's almost 13. She wants to get out by her 13th birthday so her daddy can take her out for a soda like a teenager. The people in wheelchairs have no hair, and they stare out into space. I think they're looking at their imaginary friend, but 0698 says they're not looking at anything at all. Sometimes, a little drool falls out of their mouths, and they don't even notice when it drips onto their laps. I had two roommates the first night I got to the hospital, but the other girl besides 0698 was brought out of our room the next morning by two large men in white jackets. She looked really scared, but they grabbed her by both of her arms and dragged her away. I think she probably could have walked there, but they helped her anyway. That next morning at breakfast, my roommate was in a wheelchair, staring out at nothing at all. She had a big bruise by her eyeball, but 0698 said to look away and pretend we don't know her. The screaming keeps happening every night. I still don't know why everyone is screaming in the middle of the night. I am Florence Blackwell. I am 10 years old, and I miss my mama. I'm going to keep writing my name so I don't forget it, since no one calls me that anymore. May 3rd, 1918. I am patient 0724, or Florence Blackwell, and I will be 11 years old in exactly one month. I only know that because today is a special day. When Mary came to give me my pills this morning, 
She told me that today, May 3rd, we are going to have a special doctor come visit and help us. I hope that this doctor helps me most because I want to go home to Mama. I haven't gotten any letters from Mama or Daddy, but I hope Mama is all right. She had a couple of bruises on her face that she covered up with makeup before I left. She told me that she fell, but I hope she doesn't fall anymore when I'm not gone. I don't want her to get hurt. 0698 and I made our way down to the main hall, where the new doctor was going to be. I was pretty tired since the screaming lasted an extra long time last night, and early in the morning, the two men in white jackets came to bring me back to that room where I got blasted with the water. This happens every couple of days, and I'm getting good at not falling anymore. I don't even cry when the water accidentally leaves a bruise on me. We got to the main hall, and 0698 and I sat down in the back while all the nurses and doctors were up front with the patients in the wheelchairs. There was a little stage set up, and a doctor had a patient in a chair in front of him. He said that his name was Dr. Freeman, and he came all the way from Pennsylvania to help us. Technically, he's still in doctor school, he said, but I think he can be called doctor anyway. Dr. Freeman said he was sad to see all the patients like us being so sad and sick, and he created a way to help us get better. He said that he was the only one who has done it so far, but it will be very popular once he graduates from doctor school. Dr. Freeman used a bunch of big words that I don't know, but I did hear one word I recognized. Brain. After a big show of Dr. Freeman talking with big words, he took up an ice pick and moved to the head of the patient strapped down on the stage. In one motion, he shoved the ice pick into her eye and wiggled it around. I lost my breakfast right there, and Mary had to bring me back to my room. But on the way back, all I could hear were screams and clapping. Dr. Freeman had made the patient better by hurting her? That doesn't make sense to me. But hopefully, I will find out what happened when I meet Dr. Freeman tomorrow. I will be eleven in one month exactly and I hope Dr. Freeman can make me better soon, so I can go home to my mama. After reading Florence's latest entries, I was chilled to my core. I knew that lobotomies were a part of life at that time, and especially a part of life within the mental health community, but that didn't make it less jarring to read, especially from the perspective of a ten-year-old girl. What kind of mental health facility forces its patients to sit and watch a lobotomy being performed by a man with an ice pick? This man was literally injuring people permanently for the rest of their lives, and everyone thought it was great because it turns patients into a less violent type of patient. I decided to do a little bit of research on the history of lobotomies, and it looks like the procedure wasn't even normalized until a couple of years later, which means this entire situation was completely experimental. This man didn't have a medical license and didn't have a clue what he was doing. He was essentially just sticking a sharp object into someone's eye socket and wiggling it around until the connections between the prefrontal lobe and their brain were severed. The more that I thought about the procedure being done in front of an audience, the more I wanted to lose my lunch. Before reading any further, though, I wanted to do a little more research into who Florence was and if we know who she was at all. If I couldn't find anything online, 
I figured there must be some kind of written record that just hadn't made its way to the internet yet. So I went to my local library. We have a historian that works there, and I made an appointment, and brought Florence's diary with me for her to evaluate. I didn't want to exactly say that I found the journal while trespassing on King's Park grounds, so I said it was a family heirloom of sorts, and I wanted to know more about who wrote it. Immediately, she was intrigued, and after a little bit of ruffling through a big bookcase behind her desk, brought out a registry of people and families that lived in the area at the same time that Florence would have. This was a jump, because for as far as we know, Florence wasn't local. She could have been brought here from almost anywhere. We searched and searched the book for a birth record, or something to prove that Florence existed, and we actually almost missed it. There was a small entry from 1908. All it said was that William and Margaret Blackwell had given birth to a baby girl, name unknown. That must have been them. It had to be them. Sure enough, there was a World War I draft registration card for William, and they were from a couple towns over. These were too many similarities to be a coincidence. I was convinced this had to be Florence. I'm not exactly proud of what I did next, but I stalked the Blackwell family on an ancestry website, and let me tell you, there are hundreds of people in the Long Island area with the last name Blackwell. But after a couple of sleepless nights making the best of my college-educated research skills, I found them. With butterflies in my stomach, I sent a message to what seemed to be a family member. I really didn't think he was going to answer me, but he did. William and Margaret were his great-grandparents, and their daughter, Eleanor, was his grandmother. She was born in 1919, and apparently had a hard life. Her father was an abusive drunk who came home with shell shock after the Great War. Her mother was too submissive to say anything, and took the brunt of his anger to protect her daughter. Eleanor grew up thinking she was the eldest and only in her family, but on her mother's deathbed in 1929, when Eleanor was only ten, she confessed that Eleanor wasn't the eldest. There was a daughter before her, one with a physical deformity that William had taken most of his anger out on. This physical deformity actually makes a lot of sense in the context of the next entry she had written. She used to wet the bed, and William could stand to look at her in the face. Eventually, he tucked her away at a mental hospital, and that's all she knew. Margaret had never seen her daughter again. While that was a lot of information to share with a stranger, I think it was probably information that this man wanted to get off his chest. Imagine a family secret like that, just burning a hole in your memory. I offered to let him see the diary once I was done doing some research and figuring out what happened, and he agreed because he also wanted to know exactly what happened to Florence, and figured with me being a good bit younger, I knew my way around a computer and the internet, so I decided to keep plugging along and sharing Florence's story. May 4th, 1918 I met Dr. Freeman today. He kept poking my face. Usually that makes me mad. Daddy used to poke my face and try and make it look normal, he said. 
but I didn't mind when Dr. Freeman did it. He was a doctor, after all. Maybe he really could make me look normal, so that I'd be pretty like Mama. He asked me a whole bunch of questions, like, did I ever get mad, or did I ever hit my Mama or Daddy? I said, of course not. I wouldn't hurt my Mama. But I think he thought I was lying. He kept writing a bunch of stuff down on his notepad. He writes way faster than me, but probably because he's an adult and knows a lot of stuff. Dr. Freeman kept asking if I had a pet, and I told him about my bunny and how she had run away to be with her other bunny friends. But Dr. Freeman didn't seem happy about that and wrote more stuff on his pad. He asked me if I ever started fires, and I said of course not. There was a fire down the street from my house that killed a lot of people back when I was nine. Then he asked me about my wetting the bed. I told him that that's why I was here. I had to fix my problems so that I can go home to Mama, and Daddy won't be mad at me anymore. He said that he thought I wet the bed because I was just like some other very bad children he met at other hospitals, and he had made them not be violent anymore, and he could do the same thing to me. I don't think I'm violent, but if Dr. Freeman says it could happen, maybe it could happen. Maybe I could turn out to be like Daddy instead of Mama. I just want Dr. Freeman to make me better, to go home to Mama. P.S. I am Florence, 0724. After that second update, I had a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. Something bad was going to happen to Florence. In my heart, I wanted to be able to hold her, to console her, and tell her everything was okay. But she lived a hundred years ago. She feels so real, and her problems so relevant, that it's hard to believe this happened so long ago. With a heavy heart, and a stomach full of butterflies, I continued reading the journal. May 1918 I'm not sure what day today is, but I think it's still May, because I don't feel eleven yet. I think if it was past my birthday, I would feel a whole year older, and I don't yet, so it can't be June. I've been really busy getting better lately. Mary comes in every morning to give me my pills, but lately, she's got scratches on her arms, and when I asked her where they came from, she just told me to take my pills. I don't know if I feel better yet, but maybe it's because we're trying so many new things to help me. We do the water blasting every other day now, but we started a whole new thing to make me feel better. I don't wet the bed anymore, so I think I'm better, but Dr. Freeman says I'm not yet, so we keep doing this new thing. They take me into a big room with lots of machines and wires all over the place. In the middle of all of these machines is a chair. They put me in the chair and strap my arms and legs in so I can't hurt myself. Then they put on a headband on my head, and there are two little circles that go on either side of my forehead. I don't really like this part, because it's painful. But they turn the machine on and the circles on my head start to hurt really badly. They do this a couple of times, and every time, the circles hurt more and more. Sometimes I scream because it hurts but most times I'm very brave. Usually, when we're done, I take a wheelchair back 
because I'm just so sleepy and I get bruises on my forehead. Mary doesn't like when I get this treatment. Her face goes all white and she helps me into bed with a pat on the head like she does. My roommate 0698 is gone now. I don't know where she went and no one will tell me when I ask, so I stopped asking. The screaming still happens in the middle of the night, but I've seen that a lot of patients, people that were here when I came in, aren't here anymore. I don't know where they went either. For now, I'll just keep doing my treatments and hopefully, Mama will come to get me soon. I'm 0724. June 1918. Mary told me I'm 11 now. I don't know what day it is, but Mary said it's past my birthday. But I don't feel 11. I still feel 10, but I don't feel very much anymore. The painful circle treatment has been happening more and more, and I'm sleeping a lot after it. Mary always comes in late at night to stroke my head, and sometimes lies with me in my bed when I'm asleep without my realizing it, and I wake up with her beside me. Mary came into my room late tonight after everything was dark and told me she had a secret. She said I have to write everything down in my diary and hide it so no one can find out what we did. She said that we have to go and leave really soon. I don't know how I can leave. I'm so tired all the time. But she said we have to. Because soon, Dr. Freeman is going to put an ice pick inside my eye, just like that day on the stage. That scared me, because she screamed really loudly. And I don't want to hurt any more than the circle treatment. She said she doesn't want me to get the ice pick, so we have to leave. That she's going to take me far, far away, but I have to pick a new name so that no one knows who I was here at the hospital. I can't remember my full name, but I think I'm going to pick Margaret. I don't know why, but that's a pretty name. Mary said we're going to go real soon, so I have to go to sleep to get enough rest to go far away. P.S. I'm sorry I forgot my name, Mama. June 12, 1918 My name is Mary Baker, and I am a nurse at Kings Park Psychiatric Hospital. I felt the need to complete 0724's diary so that whomever finds this can get a complete picture of the horrors that were done here. There was nothing mentally wrong with 0724. I knew it, and the doctors knew it, but her parents dropped her off here and we had to treat her like any other patient. That is, until Freeman came along. He said that 0724 was some sort of psychopath and needed to be dealt with. That's when he started to increase the frequency of the hydrotherapy, and even threw in electroshock therapy. That poor little girl doesn't know what is happening to her. But she is the bravest girl I have ever met in my four years working at this dreadful place. I know that four years is a long time, but let me tell you, whomever finds this diary, what I did to help the patients here. Every night, I would take a look at the list of the next patient to undergo that terrible therapy that Freeman calls a lobotomy. It's monstrous, if you ask me. I would look at which patient was next to receive that treatment and quietly slip into their room and kill them. 
make it look like an accident so no one suspected me, and silently save them from becoming a pawn in their game. The patients call me the angel, since I come every night around the same time, and they've actually begun to scream when they see me walking the hallways. But no one has investigated, because all these kids are just crazy. I had to face the facts, though. Death is preferable to living in a vegetative state, which is what most of them become. And when I realized that 0724 was next on the list, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I decided we're going to escape. Her parents obviously don't care about her, and I do. I'm taking her away, and we'll live off the grid. Change our names, move far away, and no one will ever know. No one will ever miss us. So whomever finds this and reads this, you know the facts. Mary Baker and whomever 0724 was no longer exist. I handed the diary off to Florence's family and needed a good while to wrap my head around what happened. Mary was an angel of death. She killed the patients that were going to be lobotomized because that's what she thought was the right thing to do. She left this journal for someone to find, so that she can make amends with what she did. She couldn't keep it bottled up inside, and couldn't just stop and leave without saving Florence, so she just left and took Florence with her. I hope to God that Florence was safe, and was able to live out a happy childhood. But with Mary... I just don't know. I hope you enjoyed a found a diary tucked in a brick at an abandoned psych hospital, as written by Alyssa Gallo and performed by Evil Idol 2019, contestant number three, Dear Blaclu. Up next, we've got a fourth and final tale for you about the faithful knight, a man trying to run from his problems runs into something far worse. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's third sponsor, Pretty Litter. The director and creator of this show, my friend Craig Groshek, he's what they call a dog and cat person. Can't live without either of them, and always at the same time. Oh, and he's got three kids. So he's had rabbits, fishes, snails, even frogs in his house at one time, too. And if his wife's got anything to do with it, he'll soon have chickens. (laughs) Okay. But seriously, like a lot of you in our audience did, Craig grew up with cats, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who loves them as much as he does. Regrettably, he lost two of his furry friends in the past five years, and says it was the hardest thing he's ever had to go through, especially with the passing of his main coon, Tober, this past year from kidney failure. Craig's got one cat at the moment, a dilute tortoiseshell named Rhea, and he'll be the first to tell you that she's cute as all get-out, loves to snuggle, but she also likes to eat. And that means she also keeps her litter box nice and full, and needing to be cleaned frequently. Before Torber and Craig's other cat, an orange tabby named Charlie died, you can imagine how much of a chore cleaning up after them was, especially with conventional cat litter. 
Craig says it still beats letting his dogs out in sub-zero Wisconsin temperatures, though. <laughs> yeah, bet. No matter how you look at it, by far the worst part of it is being a cat owner and dealing with cat litter. Anyone with feline friends will admit to this. I know I do. I got a couple of cats myself. Comes with the territory. Litter is often messy, smelly, and heavy. And can I say it? When you think about it, conventional cat litter, which most cat owners still use today, is outright barbaric. And that's why Craig switched to Pretty Litter, and I'll tell you why. Pretty Litter is Kitty Litter 2.0. It's shipped right to his door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts him the entire month. That might not sound unusual if you don't have a cat, but those of you who do know exactly what I'm talking about. With one cat, let alone three like Craig had, you'll end up going through multiple bags of litter in a single month sometimes. With pretty litter, however, there's no more running to the pet store or storing heavy open bags of cat litter in your closet. And pretty litter has next level order protection. What does that mean exactly? Well, it uses super absorbent crystals that actually trap and conceal odor and moisture. No smell, no mess. Forget about that dirty clay or compost that's completely gross to clean up. But the best part about Pretty Litter? It monitors your cat's health. No, really. It actually changes colors to detect underlying illnesses before urgent medical care is needed, saving you money, stress, and potentially your cat's life. Craig says that this litter, had he had it sooner, might have actually saved his cat Tober's life and at least given him more advanced notice that something was wrong before his sudden illness, which would have made a world of difference in his family. Because of Tober's sudden and unexpected kidney failure, and because of Cat's penchant for hiding their illness from their owners, no one had any idea anything was wrong until it was too late. And that's par for the chorus for cats. They just don't want to bother you with their problems, and they prefer to hide. Getting some advanced warning of Tober's illness, Craig says, would have made the switch to Pretty Litter easy on its own, but with all the other benefits, it's still an obvious choice. The litter was invented by Pretty Litter CEO Daniel Rothman in 2015, who himself was a cat lover, and realized there simply weren't many tools to check in on his cat's health in the market, short of expensive vet visits. So, Rothman set out to create litter with added value, like the built-in health indicators, and that was also easy to clean up, super lightweight, and that lasted longer while smelling great. And he made good on all of that with Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter, in fact, only weighs 6 pounds per bag, compared to the average 20 pounds you find in stores, and even at that smaller size, lasts 3 to 4 weeks. This is because it's formulated from crystals, instead of heavy clay or wood-based materials, and urine evaporates on contact with it, so that all you need to do is scoop the poop. And it traps odor, too, so if your cat is as reclusive as Craig's tortoise shell, no one will even know you have one. And on top of everything else, Pretty Litter is a convenient subscription-based service and ensures you have enough litter every month, without the need to run to the store and haul dozens of pounds of heavy clay and pellets back to your place. Do what Craig did and make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code CFTDN 
for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code CTFDN for 20% off. Prettylitter.com, promo code CTFDN. Be sure to use the code to let them know that we sent you. And remember, supporting our sponsors helps support this show. And your support means a lot to us. For the cat owners in our audience today, thank you so much for giving Pretty Litter a try. And for our dog owners, well, just be glad your pet doesn't poop in your house. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, we've shared the secret to a happy cat. Allow me to give the horror lover in you something to smile about, too, with another chilling tale. In our fourth and final story tonight, both written and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number five, Eric Peabody, a man reeling from a divorce is on his way to start a new life in a faraway place and finds himself at the mercy of Mother Nature and stranded at an out-of-the-way bar where he meets its rather unusual host and begins to regret it immediately, and for good reason. Without further ado, I present to you, Hospitality. One. The snow had stopped about an hour ago, but goddamn it was still a treacherous road. Mark turned up the radio, half to keep himself awake and half to try to hear the music through the interfering static. The mountains weren't good for the signal, and even though all he could pick up was country, anything was better than listening to the rattling heater trying in vain to keep the car warm. It was dark, he was tired, and it would be all too easy for the lullaby of the road noise to sneak up on him. His 72 Datsun station wagon, now 15 years old and in dire need of a tune-up or a replacement, wasn't going to win him any awards, but he didn't want to wake up with it smashed up in a ditch or down the side of a mountain. He shifted in his seat, trying in vain to find some new configuration for his large body that would be a bit more comfortable, and brought his cold thermos from between his legs up to his lips. Still empty, just like it had been for the last two hours. Mark cursed under his breath and tossed it into the back seat so he wouldn't keep trying it. It landed among the accumulated papers and food wrappers, and began to roll around as the Dotson inexpertly navigated the twisting road. Steering wheel goes clockwise, thermos rolls to the left. Steering wheel goes counterclockwise, thermos rolls to the right. Trash crinkled, adding another layer of competing noise to the radio. Mark gritted his teeth and stared forward into the night, the snow-covered road bordered by tall trees on both sides. He should have been in Boulder an hour ago. The motel would have a night clerk, so he wasn't concerned about not getting into his room, but after 12 hours of driving, he was ready to get some sleep. The interview was at 8 a.m. sharp, and he was already going to be getting less than 8 hours in the sack. He needed to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed if he wanted to make a good impression. He knew that he was underqualified for the job, and coming in with a smile on his face and a sparkle in his eye was the only thing that was going to edge him ahead of the self-important college grads that he was competing with. Then, his next chapter could begin. New job, new town, hell a new state. New life, 
most importantly, new freedom. In spite of his fatigue, he grinned a little, showing a spiteful glimpse of his teeth in the dim glow of the dashboard lights. He knew a lot more about alimony payments and child support than he did a year ago, but he was still not an expert. He didn't know how much harder it was going to make it for the bitch to find him in Colorado, but he did know she'd have to jump through some hoops to do it. That might take months, or even a few years if he was lucky. It's not too easy to find extra time for anything when you're working and trying to raise a kid. That was just fine by him. That was just dandy. The whole thing had been bullshit from the beginning. Never meant to last, never meant to be anything at all when you got right down to it. But mistakes happen, and good fucking Christ did his family pressured him to do the right thing. He never wanted to be a father, and especially not with Amber Bailey. He'd known her all through high school back home in Flagstaff, which was more than enough time to peg her for what she was. A loser. He hadn't been unaware of her glances and how she'd blush when they ended up exchanging words in the halls. So what if she had a crush on him? Lots of girls did. Mark had heard the word charisma before, in various English and history classes that he spent grab-assing with his football buddies, but he wouldn't have thought to apply the word to himself. He understood his place in the world in a more instinctual sense. He was good-looking, he had a way of making people laugh, usually at the expense of others, and people tended to like him. He was aware of his limitations, and he figured that he could make something of himself if he knew when to charm and when to intimidate. Amber had been a mistake, just one stupid decision on a November evening. He didn't even know when she ended up at the party, but he was well beyond drunk when he first saw her. He had already struck out with Brittany Christensen, who was much more attractive than Amber and rumored to be an easy lay, but she apparently didn't like having it said to her face. Mark knew better than to try something so overt anyway, but he was riding high on a winning touchdown and a six-pack of Budweiser. So now, instead of nailing Brittany upstairs in Johnny Sklodowski's bed, he was sitting on the couch in the living room, Billy Idol's white wedding thumping through the house, a throng of teenage revelry surrounding him, and his face still mildly stinging from Brittany's rejection. Not getting laid was bad, but the constant snickering glances he was getting from the partygoers was worse. Mark had switched from beer to whiskey after Brittany left, and he was now blackly drunk, head throbbing from the noise, from the alcohol, and from his own anger. His memory of the rest of the evening was understandably hazy, but he remembered the main points. Amber sitting down next to him on the couch, Mark handing her the bottle of Jack against her diminishing declinations. Mark sobering up just enough to shelve his anger and turn up the charm. Taking Amber upstairs, half leading her and half carrying her since she apparently couldn't hold her liquor. At that point, Mark wasn't even focused on getting off. He just wanted to make sure that no one thought he was too much of a loser to get some action after the game. Mark knew he wasn't a loser. His parents knew it and always told him, or always used to at least. His coaches knew it, and he got the praise he deserved for carrying his team to win after win. His teachers might not know it, but fuck them. What did they matter? Sure, they had good words for some kids like Amber goddamn Bailey, but Mark knew better. 
Amber got good grades, but she was a fucking bore. Plain. Forgettable. She'd stay in Flagstaff her whole life. Sure, she'd go to college, but she was too polite and complacent to make anything of herself. As it turned out, she didn't even go to college. She was a little too busy caring for an infant and trying to set up a home with her semi-willing husband. Mark didn't go to college either, football scholarship or no, but it was further down on his list of life complaints at that point, definitely below having a new kid and being forced to marry Amber Bailey. He supposed it wasn't a surprise to anyone that the next five years went the way that they did. Mark got a blue-collar job in a factory, spent too much time at the bar instead of home, and wasn't discreet with his indiscretions. Amber knew, she had to know, and he sometimes caught her crying, but she never said anything. Maybe she was trying to keep the marriage together, or maybe she was just scared of what he'd do if she confronted him. Frankly, he didn't care. Amber was a loser, and rolling over and taking the lot that life dealt her was her place in things. It didn't surprise him. What did surprise him was when Amber filed for divorce. He might have found it amusing. After all, it was an easy ticket out for him. But what he didn't find amusing was when she filed for alimony and when the judge granted it. Their home hadn't been much, but it was a damn piece better than the one-bedroom apartment he ended up in. That was three months ago, and things weren't showing any sign of improving. He picked up extra shifts where he could, but the constant thought of working his hands to the bone just to give more money to the bitch drove him crazy. He could work 70 hours a week, and all he had to show for it was his shitty apartment and his shitty car. Hell, it had even been her fault that he was where he was now, driving down some awful back road in Colorado instead of lying peacefully in the motel room bed. He had been packing his bag to hit the road that morning when she had knocked on the door. What should have been a quick trip out the door turned into an hour-long shouting match about why he hadn't sent the check last month. Well, he had been shouting and she had been crying. Things had finally ended when Mark grabbed his bag and walked out the door, leaving her sitting and blubbering on the floor of his front room. But he hadn't had the time to make sure everything was packed, and wouldn't you know it, the Colorado roadmap was left sitting on his kitchen table. Mark didn't notice until well into the drive, and his anger and pride had kept him from pulling over to ask for directions. You could say that it had actually been his fault that he got lost, but it didn't really matter, did it? Here he was, trying to find his way through the dark and the snow with only his memory of the route he had traced last night. His mood had not improved with the road signs he had encountered over the last 40 miles or so. Signs with uplifting messages like Winding Road and Beware of Falling Rocks and Don't Stop for Hitchhikers. He shifted in his seat again and shivered in his denim jacket. A cramp was developing in his lower back and it was getting harder and harder to keep his eyes open. He kept expecting the trees to thin out, the lanes to widen, and to see some sign of civilization in the distance. But the road droned on, unchanging. The thought of having to sleep in the car was looming in the back of his mind, but he knew that meant he would likely miss the interview in the morning, so he kept pushing it back. If he could go ten more miles, he was sure he'd find something, some gas station or truck stop, and then he could find out where the fuck he was. As it turned out, 
Mark only had four more miles until he found the silver line. 2. He was at the point of shaking his head violently from side to side to stay awake when he saw the first phantom glimpses of light through the trees. The snow had started up again, and Mark initially mistook the stuttered illumination to be his eyes playing tricks on him as the wipers pushed the snow off the windshield. However, as he continued down the twisting road, the light became more visible, and he knew that there was something real ahead. Mark's fatigue lifted a little, and his body seemed to ache even more at the thought of finally being able to get out of the car and stretch. He couldn't tell how far away the source of the light was, but he knew it was close. After a few more minutes, he entered a straight stretch of road, and the trees on the right-hand side fell away. He slowed and saw that the ground spilled down from the snow-covered roadway into the parking lot of what looked like a diner. It was a squat, long building with a neon sign above that read, The Silver Line. Welcoming light was pouring out of the windows, which stretched the length of the front of the building. Mark stopped the car for a moment to make sure he could see where to drive down from the road. The snow was covering everything, and it would be easy to mistake a ditch for a driveway. As he did so, the lights inside of the Silver Line suddenly turned off, and he caught some brief movement near the front that might have been the door opening. Oh, fuck, he said, and made a gamble as to where the driveway was. His car tilted to the right as his passenger side tires briefly left the paved roadway, but then found purchase. He drove down into the parking lot, the Datsun sliding briefly as he brought it to a stop midway between the road and the building. There were a few other cars in the lot, covered in snow, but they were on the far side, and Mark had been in no danger of hitting them. It was very dark now, with only his headlights and the dull red glow thrown by the neon sign above. Through the falling snow, he could see a figure moving under the front awning, just outside the door. Mark tapped quickly on his horn, twice, and the figure stopped. He turned off the Datsun and the engine died, shuddering, and then Mark was out into the snow, legs and back complaining at this exertion after so many hours in the car. Hey, hi! Mark called to the figure, who was now standing still and apparently looking back at him. Mark couldn't make out anything about the person, it was so damn dark, but he appeared to be very big, over six feet. The figure didn't respond. Mark waved and then stuck his hands into his pockets against the cold. He shrugged his shoulders, pulling his jacket further up around his neck, and walked towards the overhang. He had underestimated how much the Dotson's heater had been doing. It was freezing outside. As he trudged through the snow, socks getting wet through his sneakers, he called out again to the stranger. Hi, are you closing up? Still no response. When he was about ten yards away, the figure turned and went back through the front door into the diner. Shortly after, the lights flashed back on, causing Mark to shut his eyes against the sudden illumination. When he opened them again, he saw a very large, very bald man standing inside, smiling broadly at him through the window. The man opened the door outward with one heavily muscled arm and beckoned Mark to come in. The man was wearing a plain white t-shirt that must have done nothing to protect him from the cold. Mark hurried in, glad to put the night and the chill behind him. He shivered and stamped the snow off his shoes just inside the entrance as the stranger let the door close behind him. Thanks, 
he said to the man as he looked around the diner. Linoleum floor, wood paneling, booths lining the walls under the windows, and a bar running down the middle of the room with a series of grills, stovetops, and various appliances behind. A door led to some back area at one end of the bar. He realized that only some of the lights were on, shining down on the bar and cooking area. The booths and the front of the diner were still partially covered in shadow. Mark was still looking around as he heard a click from behind him. He turned to see that the large man had just engaged a deadbolt on the front door. The man saw the look on Mark's face and said, Oh, I hope that doesn't bother you. We sometimes get strange people trying to wander in late at night. The man's voice was strangely high, which was an odd juxtaposition to his intimidating frame. Mark was no whelp himself, but this man was at least six inches taller and probably outweighed him by 50 pounds. Not that you're strange, the man continued. I didn't mean to imply that. You get lost in the storm, huh? Mark was taken off guard by the man's voice and demeanor. Stammering a bit from both the cold and from his confusion, he replied, Uh, sort of. I'm trying to get to Boulder and must have taken a wrong turn a while back. I was hoping to get directions in a cup of... But he stopped when the man threw his head back and started laughing. It was high like his speaking voice with a little squeak in it. After about ten seconds, he got control of himself and said, Boulder? Oh, friend, you're quite a ways from Boulder. It's about sixty miles north of here. But you had the good fortune for God to bring you to me, so you're not bad off. Well, where am I? Mark asked. The stranger smiled broadly and said, Not in Boulder. Mark's expression darkened and he opened his mouth to say, No shit, fuck face, but then stopped himself. This man was the only person he'd seen in hours and was the one way he was going to get directions and some coffee. On top of that, his usual intimidation routine wasn't going to work on someone that had such an obvious physical advantage over him. It's hard to bully a giant. He saw that the man's smile had faded and a frown was forming on his brow. Mark closed his mouth and mentally regrouped. Hey, I'm sorry. I've been on the road since Flagstaff and I'm pretty damn lost. It looks like you're closing up, but I'd appreciate the hell out of it if I could get a cup of coffee and point it in the right direction. He tried a smile, which probably looked ghastly on his face after so long on the road. The stranger looked at him for several seconds, his frown unchanging. Mark noticed that the man had exceptionally blue eyes. Then the frown vanished and was replaced by the previous bright smile. It happened so quickly that it startled Mark. Sure, buddy, the stranger said affably and held out his huge hand. The name's Roger. Mark took it and internally winced at the strength of Roger's grip. Mark, he said. Roger disengaged just as Mark was about to try to pull his own hand back and then walked down the length of the diner and stepped through the partition to the cooking area behind the bar. Mark saw him lean down and start rustling through various drawers and cabinets. After a minute of this, Mark walked up and swung his leg over one of the bar stools, turning his back to the bar and looking out the windows. It was very dark outside, the lights barely reaching out to the few snow-covered cars in the parking lot. Snow continued to drift down from above. "'There you are, you bastard,' Roger said with good humor in his voice." and Mark turned to see him straightening up with a can of Folgers in one giant hand. He put it on the counter and started to fill a coffee pot with water from a nearby sink. 
his back to Mark and light from the fluorescence overhead gleaming on his bald scalp. Mark was again struck by how huge the man was. He could see muscles rippling along Roger's broad back as he leaned forward to work the sink. Mark also noticed something that he hadn't caught earlier. The man's clothing was dirty. There was a general griminess to the white shirt, with a few streaks of brown here and there. The neckline was uneven and loose around Roger's neck, unlike the rest of the garment, which fits snugly across his torso. The shirt was partially tucked into nondescript brown pants, with a tattered belt and one belt loop ripped, hanging freely by its lower portion. Roger shut off the sink and poured the water into the coffee maker. As he did so, he looked back at Mark over his shoulder and said, So, Boulder? Yeah, do you know the quickest way I can get there? Roger chuckled a bit and replied, I sure do, but you're not getting there tonight. Not with the weather like this. Mark felt his jaw tightening and made an effort to ease off on it. Well, I've really got to be there for a job interview in the morning. How about you give me directions and I'll figure out if I can get there or not. As he spoke, he couldn't keep a slight note of irritation out of his voice. You got family back in Flagstaff? Uh, yeah, wife and kid. He was having a bit of trouble following the sudden changes in the conversation. Roger turned to him, wiping his hands on his shirt. The smile was still on his face as he said, I bet you that wife and kid of yours would love to have you back there one day. All things said and done, family's all we got, isn't it? Family and God. Mark was silent for a moment, hands slowly clenching on the bar, and then said, How about you just tell me how to get to Boulder? Roger stood for a minute, seeming to look Mark over, and then stepped forward, somehow making the three-foot journey into a relaxed stroll. He leaned forward with his elbows on the bar right in front of Mark. How about you just calm the fuck down, friend? Mark recoiled a bit. What did you say to me? Roger pointed forward over Mark's shoulder and towards the parking lot. You see that out there? That is a winter snowstorm in Colorado, buddy. I know you don't get much of that in Arizona, but it's a real son of a bitch out here. You drive through that when you're tired and don't know the roads? He trailed off and then made a motion with his hand, mimicking a car falling off a cliff. His grin seemed to brighten as he did so. Bye-bye job interview. Bye-bye wife and kid back in Arizona. Mark sat staring at him, unsure of how to respond. He didn't bother bringing up that Flagstaff had about as much snow as anywhere. This man was clearly impressed with himself, and arguing with him wasn't going to accomplish anything. Well, he said eventually, what do you suggest? Roger waited a beat, looked down at Mark's clenched hands, and then pushed back from the bar, standing up straight and looking down at Mark. Ten hours, huh? Huh? Ten hours. I figure if you've been driving from Flagstaff, that's about ten hours on the road, isn't it? Oh, twelve. Roger whistled and raised his eyebrows. I got just the thing for you, he said with a hint of a laugh, and then turned to walk towards the door to the back. As he went, he called back to Mark. I bet that coffee would go down even better with some food, wouldn't it? And then opened the door onto a pitch-black room beyond, stepped in, and let the door swing slowly shut behind him. Mark called out, I really don't have time for... But then the door latched shut, and Mark was alone in the diner. He sighed and closed his eyes, 
slowly lowering his head until it rested on the cool veneer bar top. Sixty fucking miles. Like it or not, the huge asshole was right. There was no way that Mark was getting to Boulder tonight. His best bet was to try to find some place nearby to get three or four hours of shut-eye, and then drive the rest of the way in the morning. There'd still be snow, but at least it wouldn't be quite so dark. And goddamn, he really was tired. He felt his body slowly relaxing now that it was out of the car. The sound of the diner was soothing, actually. Sort of familiar. The buzz of the overhead lights. The sound of the coffee percolating. Some muffled cracking sound that was probably a tree branch giving way under the weight of the snow. Roger would probably know someplace he could crash out for a few hours. Didn't have to be much. Just a warm bed that he could stretch out in, close his eyes, let his body unwind. 3. Consciousness came back to him slowly. He was first aware of the new smells. Coffee, cooking oil that was slightly burnt, meat. Mark opened his eyes and tried to sit up, but his lower back screamed out, cramped and painful from his posture. His forehead landed back on the bar, making a dull thud. He groaned and closed his eyes again. Well, look who's back! Mark rolled his head to the side, facing the voice. Everything felt very puffy, the way that it only does after you've been awake for far too long and gotten far too little sleep. He managed to open one eye a slit and saw Roger behind the bar, his back to the stovetop and hands propped on his hips, grinning down at him. Mark didn't notice the tongs that the man was holding, nor did he immediately notice that Roger had, for some reason, removed his pants, his stained underwear showing below the bottom of his t-shirt. All Mark noticed was the shirt itself, and he was suddenly up and backpedaling off the barstool, unaware of his body protesting at the sudden movement. His feet tangled together and he sat down hard on the floor, biting his tongue. He didn't notice this either. Roger was around the bar and coming up to him quickly, holding his hands forward in what was supposed to be a comforting gesture. Mark was not comforted. All Mark could see was that the white t-shirt, previously only grimy, was now covered with blood. There were splattered drops all over the front and several wide streaks angling across it, as if someone had dipped a paintbrush in a bucket of the stuff and haphazardly gone to town on the shirt. Mark was scuttling back on his hands and feet like a crab, whispering, What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? He knew that he had to get up, that something was very wrong, and that this giant of a man was coming towards him. But he couldn't get his body to cooperate. Hey, buddy, calm down. It's okay, it's okay, Roger said. Mark got a bit of control over his legs and managed to push back into a half crouch on his way to a full stance. He also found a bit more of his voice. What the fuck? He yelled. What the fuck did you do, man? At that point, he noticed that Roger was only half-dressed. He stopped, staring at the dirty briefs. Where the fuck are your pants? It's fine, everything's okay, Roger said, stopping as well and dropping his hands to his side. The smile was still plastered on his face. Just had a bit of trouble with the meat. A bit of trouble with the meat? Mark half-asked, half-yelled. You look like you just fucking murdered someone! 
Roger's smile faltered a degree, and he was silent for a moment. That's not a nice thing to say, friend. After everything I'm doing to help you out, help you get back safe to your family, you go and say something like that. You're covered in blood and your fucking pants are gone. Roger looked down at himself and didn't move for a beat. He then tilted his head back up, and Mark could see that the smile had returned to full strength. I guess they are, aren't they? He said, and uttered a quick bark of laughter. With that, he turned around and strolled back around the bar to the stovetop where smoke was starting to rise from a pan. Mark pulled himself the rest of the way up and stood, slowly returning to himself. He became aware that his tongue hurt like a son of a bitch, and his balance was off. He steadied himself against a nearby booth and let his heart rate and breathing come back to something resembling normalcy. His eyes were fixed on Roger, who was whistling with his back turned, bare-assed at the range. Roger, Mark called out. Roger continued to whistle and cook. Roger, Mark said again, louder. Roger stopped whistling and called back over his shoulder. Yes'm? What do you mean, trouble with the meat? Roger briefly looked back towards Mark and favored him with his perpetual smile. Oh, it had just thawed out a bit more than I expected. Lots of juices loose in the packaging, and I had a bit of a spill. He turned back and resumed his whistling. Mark leaned against the booth and blinked, trying to clear the fogginess from his head. This couldn't make sense. Did this make sense? He wasn't much of a cook, but he knew how to fry up a steak or a burger. How much blood could there be in one of those? Enough to drench a shirt? Enough to ruin a pair of pants? Maybe not for a bachelor like himself to cook at home, but if he was stocking enough for a diner? Just then, Roger lifted the pan off the range and transferred something from inside to a nearby plate. He set it on the bar alongside a coffee cup and then leaned forward on his hands, the picture of pride. Soup's on, he said cheerily and raised his eyebrows at Mark. Mark stayed where he was, assessing. He could now feel the ache in his back and legs, and his head was throbbing. He looked across the diner to the plate and could see strips of meat on it. The smell reached him, and in spite of his various aches and pains, his stomach grumbled. The desire to sit down and the desire to have food, the first in probably six hours, were now omnipresent in his mind. Was he overreacting? Today had been a shit day, and he'd spent 12 hours in the car driving. Besides, he was still pissed at the stunt that Amber had pulled earlier. Wasn't it possible that he was jumping at shadows? Just a little? He hesitated a moment longer, and then his eyes landed on the coffee mug. That cinched it. Fuck it, he said under his breath, and stumbled over to the bar, collapsing onto the stool. There you go, Roger said merrily, and turned around to start cleaning up. Mark took a long drink of coffee. It was strong and black, and it felt amazing going down. As it reached his stomach and he turned his attention to the dish, he almost forgot about Roger. It had been a long, damn day, and he needed this. The meat appeared to be strips of pork. Not chops, or at least not cut like chops usually were. Mark didn't care. It smelled great, and after cutting off a piece and biting down on it, 
he realized it tasted even better than it smelled. The pounding in his head was already starting to ease back, and he felt the fog in his brain clearing. Good lord, this was just what he needed. And then, Roger had to ruin his brightening mood. So, what's your wife's name? Mark stopped chewing for a moment, displeased by the sudden reminder. Amber, he said briskly, and resumed eating. Boy or a girl? Huh? Your kid! Boy, back to chewing. How old? Mark looked up and saw that Roger still had his back to him as he continued to clean the small mess from the food prep. He couldn't see Roger's face, but he was sure that he was still grinning. Mark suddenly became aware again of Roger's partial nudity, and that realization paired poorly with the taste of the meat in his mouth. He didn't want to stare at the man's ass while he was eating. He turned his gaze aside and responded curtly, Five. Ah, that's great, Roger said. I remember being five. It was a great time. Mark lowered his head, facing his food and trying to not encourage further conversation. The food tasted good, and he didn't want to taint it with thoughts of his family. All he needed right now was to eat and get more coffee into him. After that, get directions, and then leave this weirdo in the dust. As the food and caffeine were hitting his bloodstream, his upper brain functions were creeping back toward normal levels, and he was realizing with renewed clarity that this was a strange situation. He was hundreds of miles from anywhere he'd ever been, it was God knew how late at night, and he was sitting in a diner talking to a man with blood on his shirt and no pants. Best to wrap this up and get back on track. That would be just dandy with Mark. Yes siree, five was mighty fine. I didn't know it then, but it was the best time now that I think about it. Mark closed his eyes and silently willed Roger to shut up. His tongue hurt from where he bit it and his headache was coming back. All he wanted was to eat in peace. It was only a year later that he left us, you know. My dad, I mean. Mark looked up. Roger was facing him, leaning back against the range, grin in its rightful place on his face. His thumbs were hooked into the top of his jockey shorts like a cowboy would hook them into his belt. The weight had pushed them down slightly, and Mark saw the uppermost tufts of dark pubic hair creeping out from behind the elastic. He stopped chewing. Real son-of-a-bitch thing to do, if you ask me, Roger said still smiling. Mark froze. Something here was wrong. Very wrong. He choked back the half-chewed meat that was in his mouth and looked up at Roger's face. The grin brightened, showing the man's teeth. Mark hadn't noticed it before, but they were stained yellow. He straightened and put down his silverware, still looking Roger in the eyes. There was a glimmer of something in there that unsettled him deeply. All of a sudden, he thought, Cars. There are cars in the parking lot. More than one. Where are the people that drove those cars? As that clicked into place in his mind, two other things followed. The first was the sound of the deadbolt on the front door clicking into place, and Roger saying, we sometimes get strange people trying to wander in late at night. 
The other was a brief glimpse of a road sign that read, Don't stop for hitchhikers. He pushed the plate away across the bar. It was time to leave. Fuck the directions, fuck the coffee, and fuck Roger. Thanks for the food, but I really need to get back to it. He placed his palms on the bar top and started to push himself up. He didn't see Roger remove his right hand from the elastic of his briefs and reach behind him to the stovetop. Oh, no need for that, Roger said, leaned forward, the muscles in his arm bunching, and drove a butter knife through the top of Mark's right hand, sinking it through the veneer top of the bar and to its hilt in the plywood underneath. Mark stared down at the knife, his eyes as wide as teacups, completely unable to understand why, even though he was pulling his hand back towards him, it wasn't moving. A moment later, the pain hit his brain, and he started screaming. He grabbed the remaining few inches of protruding handle with his left hand, meaning to pull it out. He had barely gotten a grip on it, it was already slick with blood, when Roger reached forward with both of his monstrous hands and wrapped them around Mark's, firmly but gently. Mark was now trapped, right hand pinned to the bar by the knife, and left hand enveloped in Roger's gorilla-like hold. Roger stared directly into his eyes, still smiling, but Mark could see that the muscle at the edge of his jaw was now twitching rapidly. Roger winked, said, check this out, and then slowly began to squeeze his hands together around Mark's closed left fist. The first thing to give way to the increasing force of Roger's grip was Mark's middle finger, which dislocated at the knuckle. Then his hand turned into a chorus of agony as bones shifted, realigned, and snapped. Roger kept going, pressing harder and harder, and Mark saw with terror that there was now fresh blood seeping through Roger's fingers, not from the knife wound, but from the increasing damage being done to his left hand. He looked back to Roger's face and saw that blood was dripping from his grin, oozing out of his gums and around his yellowed teeth as his jaw clenched into its maniac rictus. Mark pushed with his legs, panicking, trying desperately to do something, anything to get away from the pain. He pressed hard against the bottom of the bar and wrenched back with his shoulders, trying in vain to pull his hands away. Roger's grasp was too tight, and Mark was distantly aware that the man was now laughing, high and loud, as he continued to squeeze, continued to crush Mark's left hand. Mark shifted his feet to get a better angle, leaned forward, and then shoved back again, putting everything he had into it. At the same moment, Roger released his grasp, throwing his arms wide like a magician releasing a dove. Mark's momentum, suddenly unimpeded, threw him back across the bar stool. The knife, driven too deeply into the bar to move, ripped through Mark's right hand, separating tissue all the way through and out the webbing between his index and middle finger. Mark continued backward, pivoting on his ass over the stool, and landed hard on the back of his head. Lights exploded across his field of vision, and his view of the ceiling unmoored from his proper perspective, spinning and stuttering. Mercifully, for a moment, the pain in his hands subsided. 
he realized that Roger was talking. He couldn't make out the words at first. His ears were ringing from the blow to his head, and he was disoriented. As soon as I saw you pull up, so you shouldn't feel too bad. It's not like you could have done anything to prevent it. I did four before you even got here, so one more isn't much of a thing. Mark's vision swam, but he was aware of Roger walking towards him from behind the bar. He knew that he should be doing something to try to get away, but he couldn't quite understand why. He rolled halfway over and tried to prop himself up with his ruined left hand. That cleared his mind in a hurry, and he screamed, feeling the shattered bones grind and shift under the weight. He dropped back to the floor, crying out, as Roger continued towards him. The rest were already here when I came along. God told me that they would be, and that I should stop by and say hello. Nothing too special, but I gotta do what I gotta do. Made it as quick as I could. Not really their fault, you know. Just the wrong place at the wrong time. He was now just a few feet away from Mark. He strode casually and easily, like a man enjoying a walk in his garden. Mark was breathing in fast, shallow whimpers, tears running down his face. But then you showed up, and I thought, well, one more would be fine. Just fine. And friend, you were my lucky one. He stood over Mark, bloody hands on his hips and legs in a wide stance. He grinned down at him, illuminated from behind by the lights, face in partial shadow. You're the proof, after all. I do what he wants me to, and God throws me a gift. My mom always taught me to have faith in God. As soon as I saw that finger of yours, I knew I had something special. Roger stepped over Mark and outside of his field of vision. He heard him say, Man with a wife and kid shouldn't be this far from home with a tan line on his ring finger. I mean, my mom raised me right, but I saw what it did to her, him leaving. My dad, I mean. Got me thinking that maybe I could give you a piece of what my old man deserved. That's the gift right there. That's how God lets me know that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm making him proud. Both of his hands were on fire, and his head felt like someone had hit it with a bowling ball. As enormous as the pain was, it was eclipsed by his fear. Hyperventilating now, he struggled to prop himself upright, to turn so he could see what Roger was doing behind him. He was still too dizzy, and succeeded only in a stilted thrashing. But still, my mom taught me about hospitality, right? Right! He guffawed laughter. Least I could do is give you a hot meal before we got down to the real work. Nothing proper, of course. After all, you're not a proper man and you don't deserve to eat what a proper man would eat. But we had some fresh meat lying around, didn't we? Something fit for someone like you. A moment later, the lights clicked off, leaving him in complete darkness, and he heard the sound of the big man walking back towards him. I hope you enjoyed Hospitality as written and performed by Evil Idol 2019 contestant number 5, Eric Peabody. Don't forget, all of tonight's performances 
were featured this year in the 2019 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition, hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, now and running the next several months. If you enjoy the performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find CTFDN, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation bar to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. If you enjoyed what you heard tonight, we'd like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our ad-free content. Finally, Thanks again to today's sponsor, Mel Science, Best Fiends, and Pretty Litter for their support of this show. Don't forget, you can get 25% off your Mel Science subscription, plus a free starter kit, a free virtual reality headset, and free shipping when you text TALES to 64000. Text TALES to 64000 to get this special offer from Mel Science. And remember, you support the show when you support our sponsors. So text T-A-L-E-S to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. And as a reminder, you can make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code CTFDN for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code CTFDN, for 20% off, prettylitter.com, promo code CTFDN. Thanks again for giving our sponsors a try this month. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn about more of our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Otis Jack. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. If you're looking for some fresh tales while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, Otis Jiry's Horror Storytime and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon 
to get my latest releases. Or search for my podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, where I perform four brand new tales every episode. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like to perform? We take submissions. Email us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well. To get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing. Leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>